We've been working really hard with the government of Canada on meeting their 5% target of procurement from Indigenous business. We did some work actually with government of Canada to look at where they spent their money and compared that to the Indigenous businesses in Canada and found that Indigenous businesses could actually serve 24% of the government spend. So 5% is a minimum target. It's definitely achievable. That's Tabitha Bull. She's the president of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. She's a proud Anishinaabe Kwe and is a member of the Nipissing First Nation in Northern Ontario. She's our guest today on the Akamemuk Podcast. Dance Tuwal and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're happy to be joined by a First Nations leader in business. Tabitha Bull is the President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. She's also a board member of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and sits as a member on both the Positive Energy Advisory Council and the C.D. Howe Institute's Energy Policy Program. She's an electrical engineer and she's a graduate from the University of Waterloo. So Tabitha Bull, a great big welcome to our Akamemuk podcast. Thank you, Chimungwetch National Chief, for having me. It's a real honor, and uh, hello to everyone out there listening. So, Tabitha, can you give us a quick overview of CCAB, the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business? Like, what is it? Who are its members? Like, what does CCAB do? Thank you. So, we at CCAB have been uh, around almost 40 years. Uh, we were originally established with the mandate to bring together corporate, non-Indigenous Canada with Indigenous business. And although the programs that we are working on and, and the work we're doing has changed, that mandate is still our key mandate with a vision and mission to grow the Indigenous economy. Uh, that means supporting Indigenous entrepreneurs with tools. Um, it means making connections between Corporate Canada and Indigenous business in terms of procurement, um, ensuring that large Corporate Canada understands that there are over 60,000 Indigenous businesses across Canada. They are uh, incredible business, resilient business people and making those connections. I think the network part is so important and mm -hmm. something that many Indigenous entrepreneurs don't have access to in the same way that maybe a non-Indigenous person might have growing up in a, in a big city. Um, the other program that we have that, that's really important and, and has been growing significantly is what is called a Progressive Aboriginal Relations Program. And that's a program that corporations, Indigenous or non, uh, go through to understand how they can better work with Indigenous people, Indigenous businesses, um, how they can support across their organization through employment, business development, community relations, and leadership actions. We have about 145 corporations across Canada in that program right now, mm -hmm. and we're seeing some significant change and impact through that program. We are a membership association, uh, a little over 1,300 members. About 65% of those are Indigenous businesses, um, and, and the rest are non, and they are across every province and territory, every sector and size. Um, we've seen really incredible growth of late in the IT sector with uh, Facebook, Shopify, mm -hmm. uh, Amazon, Uber, coming on, Google, 
um, coming on and really wanting to understand how they can do better and how they can support Indigenous entrepreneurs, which which gives us a lot of optimism. That's quite a bit. So basically networking, hooking up, uh, partnering, linkages between Indigenous businesses and non-Indigenous businesses, corporate Canada. You have the Progressive Aboriginal Relations Program. So is that kind of like a misconception training, cross-cultural training? or So definitely includes cultural awareness training as, as part of the re- requirement. And we have a number of Indigenous businesses that are members that corporations we would recommend that they use and, and always key to ensure that they're um, hiring someone who's aware of the culture uh, with the communities that the business is working with. You know, so if you're working with communities in BC, you're not going to hire uh, someone who does cultural awareness training in Ontario. So we, but we're always very clear about that. And then it's more of a certification program. So the corporation will look across a number of criteria and set their intentions about, let's ensure that we're purchasing 5% of our, our procurement from Indigenous business. How are we ensuring that we're employing Indigenous people and not just getting them in the door, but that we're creating a space that they feel included and respected um, and that there's opportunity for them to succeed within the ranks of the organization leadership actions so we also see some organizations uh, like bruce power as an example who have then required or incentivize their suppliers to also go through the through the par program um, and then of course community relations where you know in resource extraction companies this used to be uh, that's where we used to see a lot of businesses, but that's what's really so great to see right now is that we have educational institutions, we have not-for-profits, and we have companies like Uber who are wanting to know how can they interact and be better um, relationship holders with Indigenous people. So it's not only recruiting First Nations people, it's retention, helping with recruitment retention strategies in the, in the different companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Across the different sectors, are you seeing a lot of participation from First Nations businesses, Indigenous business, like in the mining sector, the tourism sector, manufacturing, retail, um, forestry? Where are those? You mentioned there's 60,000 businesses, First Nations businesses, Indigenous businesses. Across all the sectors or more in this one? What are you seeing? Uh, definitely across all sectors. Uh, we definitely see uh, quite a few in construction, um, and that's, you know, a lot of based on the opportunity that existed in uh, in Alberta really and in oil and gas at the, at the boom of that for indigenous businesses to be created uh, to be able to participate in that sector but um, of late we're seeing a lot of growth in agriculture and agri-food aquaculture as well mm-hmm. um, and also um, retail now more so e-commerce now that we're into COVID I know we'll talk about that a little bit later but but there's a lot of growth we're seeing in particularly women entrepreneurs who are uh, building and providing soaps or skin cells or sustainable goods, cosmetics um, that are built on their own teachings and, and are sustainable and respectful of the environment. Um, and we're seeing a lot of growth in that area as well. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, uh, we've always talked about self-government, self-determination, but we've also made the point as leaders that it's got to be linked to economic self-sufficiency. So all this links and ties into that. Now, with COVID-19 all around us in Canada and the world, um, how is that impacting uh, Indigenous businesses during this pandemic? And how are they doing? What are you seeing on the ground? 
And uh, once you see the challenges and issues, of course, I'm going to ask, what can be done to help them? <laughs> right. Thank you. So uh, we did a, a survey of about 900 Indigenous businesses back in May with um, our friends at NACA and NIDB and CANDU. Um, and then we redid that survey again in December. Just of our most recent survey, we definitely saw that four in 10 businesses had closed temporarily and about 2% had closed permanently. Though I think um, we need to be cognizant that the businesses who may have closed probably didn't fill out the survey. So, you know, I think those numbers are probably a little bit higher on the on the permanent closure. Um, about 73% said that they had been impacted negatively, some very negatively mm -hmm. and some uh, definitely uh, impacted. We also saw that a number of businesses I'm back in June, I think about four in 10 businesses said they couldn't uh, operate beyond uh, six months without further support from a financial perspective. But um, they also can't take on any more debt. So, and we've seen this across the Canada with small business everywhere, but mm -hmm. Indigenous businesses um, in particular, who about a third of them are actually financed through their own personal finances or through a personal loan, don't have a relationship with a financial institution already. Um, so difficult for them to access the programs that were rolled out, uh, but then also difficult for them to take on any more debt. Um, so we really are, you know, looking for opportunities for, for grant programs. And we actually, through a partnership with Facebook um, in the December, worked with Facebook to provide grants to Indigenous businesses. Um, we provided uh, $2,100 to Indigenous businesses, uh, 168 Indigenous businesses um, received $2,100 as a grant, um, plus some training for Facebook's marketing, and then also to um, have them as members at CCAB for the remainder of, of 2021, so we could ensure that we could continue to support them throughout the year. And I think that just demonstrates the need that's still out there of businesses mm -hmm. to be supported financially. It was an hour. It took an hour for us to get to 150 businesses and we had 168. So we were able to recently find some additional funds so that we could provide to all the businesses that applied. Okay. Well, that's a kind of a good segue in terms of support for Indigenous businesses. We just had a federal budget just recently. Looking at the federal budget uh, and assessing and looking at the different sectors that were supported. Did you see anything within that federal budget that jumped out that, hey, wow, that was really nice to see in the federal budget to support Indigenous businesses or businesses overall? And what was missing, if anything? You know, I think positively, when I first looked at the budget, I felt I felt really positive with, with a lot of what was in there uh, with the, the full amount of supports for Indigenous people in general. Mm -hmm. um, and also on on an economic perspective, because so often, uh, even in the fall economic statement, there was no mention of supporting an indigenous economy. It was all about closing the social economic gaps, which to me, um, we need to move beyond that. We need to close those, but then we need to be thinking beyond that. Um, one thing that, that I feel was missing is, I'd love to hear your opinion on this also, but mm -hmm. um, it's frustrating to me that there's a chapter on indigenous people. And that supporting Indigenous people and Indigenous business isn't throughout the budget. So on the like supporting small business, that chapter speaks about uh, entrepreneurship programs. It speaks about how we can continue to grow and recover. 
But in that chapter, it doesn't reference Indigenous business. I think there's one thing at the top that says, move to chapter eight to look at the supports for Indigenous business. What we were really hoping for was a a cross-government, national, Indigenous entrepreneurship strategy that was referenced within every program that was that was being rolled out. So referenced in infrastructure, referenced in entrepreneurship strategy, um, referenced in innovation funding, uh, so that we see a carve out for Indigenous business and peoples in to be able to benefit from all of that investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that's where I mean I think there's still an opportunity for sure for that. There's a there's a large entrepreneurship strategy uh, coming out through ICID, and and I think there's definitely an opportunity that we can develop programs or programs will be developed for that. I was pleased to see that the Community Business Fund was extended um, for 2021 because there are still a number of COVID recovery programs that on-reserve micro-businesses cannot access uh, because they don't have a CRA business number um, or because they're not meeting the payroll requirements. Uh, So I was pleased to see that that was extended. Um, I, I would have preferred to see that the recovery programs were inclusive so um, businesses could access all of them um, but I, but I'm pleased to see that there's been a recognition that some of those programs don't don't work for indigenous businesses particularly those on reserve so a whole of government approach would have been more to, to your liking and then the mm-hmm. recovery any programs that have been announced that they be accessible to indigenous businesses uh, yes. both on the uh, uh, the reserve and off the reserve. So, well, those are valid points. I think the, um, what would you say to this point about, because I've heard this across Canada and different sectors that, well, we got to create our own economy, a First Nations economy. And then I also heard, well, isn't there only one economy? And how do First Nations businesses fit into that economy in terms of supply and demand, in terms of um, um, supplying in, 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 the, in the chain, in the supply chain somewhat? You know, because there is, would would you agree with that? There is only one economy in Canada, or globally, and then how do we fit into that economy? How? What do you think about that statement? Yeah, I think we we talk often about growing the indigenous economy and the and the importance of that, and and the importance of how that can create generational wealth in indigenous people. We've we've talked to some some members actually who are members of CCAB now. Their parents were a member, and they've said, you know, if my dad didn't start that business and we didn't push for procurement from corporate Canada, um, she probably wouldn't have finished high school and wouldn't have had her own business and seen that entrepreneurism and the success of that. But I, but I think as much as, um, as much as we may want to believe that people are going to do the right thing, uh, that doesn't always happen. And I think we need to be ensuring that we're providing unique opportunities or carving out opportunities to ensure that there's procurement from Indigenous business, to ensure that there's equity participation of Indigenous communities and businesses in projects. And and we need to find incentives in order to, in some cases, make um, financiers finance those projects or or to ensure that the um, corporation partners. I, in, and I think also there is this unconscious, maybe conscious bias that um, Indigenous businesses are small. They're the cigarette shop or the gas station in a community, and and people don't understand that there are successful Indigenous entrepreneurs in every sector, and and they're no more risky and they're no more expensive than than the non-Indigenous business in the sector. So, 
we've been working really hard with the government of Canada on, on meeting their 5% target of procurement from Indigenous mm-hmm. business. Um, prior to that announcement, we did a, some work actually with government of Canada to look at where they spent their money and specifically looked at the codes as to where they spent their money and compared that to the Indigenous businesses in Canada and found that Indigenous businesses could actually serve 24% of the government spend. So 5% is a minimum target. It's definitely achievable. And um, I think that's going to have the, that's really one of our biggest priorities is ensure that we're continuing to push procurement and we see it working in corporate Canada. So procurement targets are one of the things we want to keep pushing for because my next point was about the barriers to um, First Nations entrepreneurs, Indigenous entrepreneurs, um, some of the barriers that, that you see as a CEO of CCAB, and, and you talked about them, government not having a robust procurement strategy, procurement plan in place. And as you pointed out, there is a 5% target, but it's a minimum. It can go way above. And these are multi-billion dollar contracts. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Uh, there is a target now in place in terms of procurement. What are some of the other things, other barriers um, that you are seeing from your perspective? I think, I think partially it is this uneducated under, or belief that, or just in not understanding how big the Indigenous economy is and how many Indigenous businesses are out there and, and what great partners they are. Um, that there's a real long-term vision uh, in most Indigenous businesses. They're also... Uh, have sustainability at their core. Uh, in addition, they also are looking at how can they uh, give back to their communities as well. And I think youth of today, new talent of today, uh, wants to procure or buy from someone that aligns with their values. And, you know, ESG discussions come out so much for investment. Um, on environment and social and governance and indigenous businesses have been doing this and and operating in that sphere Mm -hmm. uh, forever. Uh, So I think, I think the biggest barrier is just that education and that's really what we're doing. And I'm, um, you know, we've had a lot of really good success of late at that. I think um, also is, is the lack of indigenous youth to see indigenous leaders in the business sphere or in uh, positions of of leadership and we need to ensure that we're creating space for that to happen as well and then and then as we definitely know that the the biggest barrier for indigenous entrepreneurs is access to finance access to capital Mm -hmm. as well and and infrastructure and I think that uh, I know I've heard you speak on this as well but during COVID that infrastructure gap um has been exacerbated for Indigenous people and, and definitely has impacted Indigenous businesses more so than than maybe others. So everything from education, awareness, uh, partnerships, access to capital, uh, that was always the, the, the big things, right? Even, uh, even the bonding thing. You can't bid on this unless you have a couple of million dollars in the bank account, you know, in order to bid on these things. So all these things compound. And we did talk about procurement. There's a robust piece now to build upon within government in terms of uh, percentage of government contracts for Indigenous businesses to be uh, worked towards. Uh, but that, that whole idea of capital, because now there's this growing thing that I'm seeing across. It would be interesting your take on this about how First Nations or Indigenous businesses are moving beyond as well the IBAs, Impact Benefit Agreements. And we're starting to look at equity ownership. 
and not just in the small little retail, the, the Tim Hortons gas bars, but the big mega projects from pipelines to, to mines to, to railways to big manufacturing. We see what happened with uh, uh, member two buying in into the, uh, mm-hmm. the East Coast uh, uh, fishery, you know, in the private sector, all those things. Is that trending across Canada, do you think? Uh, what have you seen in that regard? Yeah, I think we've seen that uh, from an equity position, and it's definitely something that we've been pushing as well, that this is more beyond an IBA, and we need to look at equity position. And And we've seen some great success of that. Of course, um, Miccosu Cree in the East Tank Farm uh, in in the Fort Mac area. Um, but even more so, if I think about my um, my history prior to CCAB uh, in renewable energy and the number of, of projects that Indigenous communities were able to be part of and have an equity position in, and then the ability for those communities to take that revenue and reinvest it back into their community or reinvest it back into another business. And that's where we really start to make that impact and you really see that impact happen. Um, And, you know, I'm always also talking about this relationship building and how important it is that partners speak to communities and businesses long before there's a project so that you can build that relationship and bid on those projects together. Uh, And that's where you're really going to see true partnership and and equity. And we do see some good examples of, of corporations as well who, have an Indigenous partner, but the idea is that eventually the Indigenous partner will own the majority of the project uh, as the revenue feeds back into the community, that they can t- continue to buy more so that in the end they're the majority or the full uh, partner. Hmm. That re- the talk about renewable energy, that's kind of key because that even fits with First Nations worldview, Indigenous worldview about um, balancing the economy and the environment and uh, always doing things that are sustainable so that water and the lands aren't totally devastated for future generations. And so even coming out of this pandemic, there's a lot of talk about this phrase about building back better. And that's talked about uh, uh, even nationally, but even in globally, it's called the Great Reset. You know, that there's a chance now for the public sector, private sectors to look at new ways of doing things, creating wealth, creating jobs for people, but in a sustainable, clean way. And for First Nations, you think across Canada, we have 634 across Canada and all at different levels, different nations, tribes, but some are doing some exciting things um, like uh, uh, Souk in BC, you know, uh, they're total solar, right? So Chief Gord Planis is, is solar. They're, they're selling back to the grid in solar. I think of uh, Henby Inlet mm-hmm. with uh, wind, you know, Chief Wayne McQuabby up at Henby Inlet. And um, geothermal at Peguis and microgrids at Gull Bay, you know, saving 300,000 liters of diesel. Um, what are you seeing again? Like, that's a track. I, I can do those four off top because I know those individuals and they're, they're close and I lift them up as a prime examples all the time of how to do it. Um, what are you seeing in that trend going forward? Uh, yeah, I think I'm, we're still seeing a lot of growth there and, and, kind of too with my background in in energy and electricity it's something that I'm still really keen to to follow um and I've spoken um from New Brunswick to BC to Alberta on this opportunity um and there is a significant interest both from community but also from the corporate partner uh because truly I I don't you're not going to be able to build a 
infrastructure project without an Indigenous partner uh, moving forward. And I think we need to move towards that mindset. Um, You know, even in Ontario, so in my time in Ontario working on renewable projects with communities, by the time the procurement was kind of done in in Ontario, uh, almost half of the First Nations in Ontario were partnered on a renewable project. And had that procurement continued, we would have seen an even higher increase. I think in the last large procurement that happened, 13 of the 16 projects had an Indigenous partner. And one of them had remote community partners. So the project wasn't in their territory, but the remote communities worked together to partner on this project and um, committed that the revenue that came from that project would go back into building renewables within their own communities. And those are communities that are all on diesel, like Gull Bay as mm-hmm. well. I think the other amazing project is Watana Kiniap. Um, that project has been happening for so long. but 20 years. Yeah. And, and that... I mean, that is just resilience of Margaret for sure. But Yes, Margaret Kanikonash, a shout out to Margaret, you know, yes. and, and for, for our listeners, maybe explain what that is about hooking up those isolated communities mm-hmm. into the, the grid. So there's 25 communities in Ontario that are still on uh, diesel generation. And this was a project uh, that a number of tribal councils got together and worked on together to uh, connect the transmission line to those communities. Mm-hmm. So... Um, not them for those in Ontario, not the Matawa communities as of yet. And then there were four communities that were not part of the business plan. Um, they were either too small or too far. So Pewanik and Fort Albany as examples. And Gull Bay was one of those. And uh, Gull Bay, and AJ, another shout out to AJ. Gull Bay is one of my favorite stories, what they've done in that community. And, and Chief King, it's mm-hmm. so much leadership in that community to, to um, move beyond diesel. Uh, so what Tenekiniap will be uh, to connect all of those projects to the transmission line system in Ontario and and reduce their use of diesel. Yeah, it's, that's a strong, a good example. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Margaret Kanikonash. She's been at that for 20 plus years. She's so committed, <laughs> yeah. never gave up on that. And uh, it's just amazing. So uh, glad we talked about that. And now I'm looking at uh, CCAB. And uh, your list of staffers, and I see that there's almost three quarters of the employees at CCB are women, and that's a good thing, a powerful thing. Um, how does that translate into support for Indigenous women entrepreneurs going forward, or even um, the trend? Like we always, I've always said, we have to try to get more Indigenous people in leadership positions, both men and women. Um, uh, on boards of directors and, and positions of authority and power, decision-making tables. W- can you make some comments in that regard in terms of the impact of uh, women entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs going forward? And and how are you seeing some in senior management or trends to be on the boards? What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on those that regard? Yeah, so first, indigenous women entrepreneurs, I, um, I really see, and particularly I've seen this through the past year, is the resilience amongst those women, but also the community that's been built. Um, So Tierra Fraser, who uh, is the first Indigenous person to own an airline at West in BC, Mm -hmm. um, she started what is called the Lyft Collective, and it initially was Sunday afternoons, a group of Indigenous women got together on a call to talk about how can we support one another through covid I know they're like way over a hundred calls because they started meeting um, twice a week 
And the conversation was always about how, what do we need? And some of the conversation was about, I need to move my business onto e-commerce and somebody else would be like, I can help you with that. And then by the, even in that first month, there were laptops flying across the country to support one another. Um, but they've also promoted one another and promoted each other's business. And that, I mean, not everyone in that group, of course, um, has had a successful last year but there have been some who have really like at Christmas or the holiday season said it was their best year ever so that promotion I think has been so incredible and Mm -hmm. I think it's just that true resilience that indigenous women have and um, to be taping this on May 5th I think is is really fitting for that but Mm -hmm. um, I think I think also so we've also seen um, across um, our supporters and members a real interest in supporting specifically Indigenous women. So we have um, had just launched Indigenous Women Entrepreneurship Fund, which will provide, again, grants of $2,100 uh, to Indigenous women entrepreneurs. Um, and we have an Indigenous Women in Leadership Award, uh, which this is our fifth year of that award. And as you know, uh, Chief Tammy Cook-Searson yep. is the recipient, um, which is amazing. Um so we're we're having that event on June 17th, but we're bringing back all of the previous award winners who include Roberta Jameson, Nicole Boucher, um, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and and Deanne. It's a it's it's so important for us to continue to support those and to and so amazing that those women are willing to tell their story about how their careers in leadership as Indigenous women um, have been for them. Uh, so I think that's really important. And also on the boards to speak to on boards. So I sit on a, a couple boards myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, working with the federal government on their 50-30 challenge. So this is the challenge for corporations to have 50% women on boards and 30% underrepresented and indigenous people. Um, but I think we need to ensure that we're creating a board room that is... Um, safe, inclusive, respectful as well. And that uh, needs to come hand in hand with a commitment to recruit more women and, and to diversify your board. Um, so so I think that work also needs to be done. And, I, and the corporate Canada requirement for uh, businesses to disclose uh, their board members. Um, I think the one that just came out said that of the 224, I think it was businesses that needed to disclose, only seven of them had an Indigenous board member. And mm. I, I remember reading that to my husband thinking, God, I could probably name those seven. Like, that's mm-hmm. crazy that that's the way it so is. There's, there's a lot of work to get done in that area of getting more and more First Nations people onto the boards of directors and uh, um we're going to have to do, keep doing more through CCAB and AFN and all the powers to be yeah. to keep pushing that uh, that door open. And to ensure that we're not always tapping the same people. You know, there are so many uh, Indigenous leaders out there that that boards need on their board that have wisdom to share. Um, mm-hmm. But I think often we need to ensure that we're continuing to promote them. So corporations aren't always asking the same handful of Indigenous leaders. Mm-hmm. Got to expand. No, we've got a million people 
um, all sorts of in all sectors, you know, and it's always a thing that we try to break down. Oh, let's just put the indigenous person in and, and make them deal with indigenous issues. Yes. But no, no, no. <laughs> we can indigenous people can be involved in marketing and finance and legal and like across the sector. And it's not just dealing with uh, indigenous issues or indigenous people dealing with indigenous things. It's it's across the board. It's across the whole business realm. And uh, people need to understand that and get that. So yeah. we're going to have to keep talking about that and uh, keep pushing the envelope bigger and wider. To yeah, And the message is you get better decisions. You get better corporate uh, uh, policy. You get better business plans when you include indigenous peoples. Uh, women entrepreneurs, first nation women entrepreneurs, indigenous women entrepreneurs, uh, around that board table, especially yeah. now with um, the big focus on balancing the environment, the economy. And uh, that's uh, the message we got to keep pumping out there. Yeah, I think there's been lots of business cases that, that definitely demonstrate how diverse thought around your boardroom table um, also goes back into into a prop, more profitable business. So, so for those who, you know, again, I go back to for those who aren't sometimes need to see the bottom line, um, that business case is there as well. Of course. It goes like planet, people, profit. You mm-hmm. know, the three P's business planning model going forward. Yeah. So that's huge. Tabitha, I'm going to always ask this last question. You know, in light of all the challenges and everything going on across Canada and the world and, uh, uh, you know, from uh, discrimination in the healthcare sector, racism to, to dealing with COVID-19, the pandemic, uh, what gives you hope? What provides you hope? What can you leave our listeners with from a hopeful perspective, from uh, your eyes and your thought? I think definitely it's that the conversation is happening more often and in more spaces. The conversation about our history as Indigenous people in Canada, um, and all, but also about the conversation about racism that's happening today. So even if I think about... Um, what my kids are learning in school uh, and that every project that they have, there is always an opportunity to choose a, a case study that has to do with our history and the true history of Indigenous people or an opportunity to talk about in current news. There's always a selection that is about Indigenous people or, or an issue that Indigenous people are facing today. And I think that gives me so much hope because those are our future leaders. And, and then I think also... Um, that people are are brave enough to stand up and speak their voice and speak their experience and that media is listening. Hmm. I think the one thing I would love to see though is that media also celebrates more these incredible projects that are happening and, and the credible success that we see Indigenous people undertaking and experiencing. We, we need to make sure that we're also telling that story. And those stories give me a lot of hope as well. Fantastic. Tabitha Bull, thanks so much for coming on our Auckland podcast. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Auckland podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>